Welcome to the FDF podcast sponsored by Clark Energy. My name is James Hawkins. I'm the head of corporate affairs for the FDF. I'm Kat Hill, head of policy at the FDF Scotland. And I'm Ian Wright, and I'm leaving. So this is one of our uh, valedictory conversations uh, with Ian. Looking over the past seven years of Ian's tenure at the FDF, Ian, you came in when David Cameron was prime minister, a long, long time ago, it seems now. Uh, you see now David Cameron, uh, Theresa May, and uh, now we have uh, Boris, obviously. How do you think policy has changed? Do you, do you see links between those three administrations, or do you think each administration has a very different character? I think that the, well, obviously, they're all Tories to start with. So, in a sense, we're in Coalition the... Coalition to start with, remember. Yes, we're, but we've had now 11 years of Conservative <laughs> or Conservative and Liberal Democrat government uh, after a very long period of Labour government. To 13 years of Labour government. So I think from the point of view of the, of the policy agenda, I think we've seen obviously one absolutely massive issue of policy and one major threat to the national security. So, so we've seen the, the prolonged and extremely difficult uh, issue of Brexit um, only a year into my tenure here, we had the referendum uh, and the consequences of the referendum have been written across almost everything that that the food industry has had to do since then. I'm not a great counterfactual person, but I think it would have been the same, but different if we had had a different result in the referendum. I've always thought that the the real tragedy of, of the referendum was the campaign which was certainly the worst campaign, political campaign, I've ever witnessed. Um, and as you know, I've, I've led some campaigns. I've been very heavily involved in several general elections. And I just think the paucity of intellectual content and of honesty on both sides of the referendum was, has left a legacy of complete mistrust that's going to take a generation to put back together. And I think that mistrust runs under all of the rest of the policy issues that we've faced. And then, of course, as well as the, as well as the challenge of trying to put the country back together again after the referendum, we've had the last two years of, of COVID, um, a very, very different kind of threat. Um, and I, I'm, I think that it's difficult now to untangle what was COVID and what was Brexit. Um, And I do think that's going to be something that we're going to need to think about over the next decade. And it's going to be a big challenge for Karen Betts when she comes into this job and for everybody here at the FDF to to continue to uh, take our part. I mean, we've managed actually rather well, I think, in terms of the organisation to get national attention, to get the ear of government, to involve ourselves in the key discussions. But to some degree, those, 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 uh, that ability to do so has been uh, based on the legacy of Brexit and COVID. And it's an interesting question about whether the FDF can remain as engaged at the top table 
as both of those issues move into different and perhaps less prominent phases in the years to come. Sitting on top of all of the different policy agendas is the government's attitude to business in general. The FDF, representing the biggest manufacturing sector in the UK, is at its heart a business representative organisation, now with over a thousand members. Ding, ding. The Cameron government was probably very pro-business. The May government was, I mean, one of the market things was its... Um, it's it's lack of trust in, in, in business and it's willing to intervene against business. And obviously, Boris came in with that very famous um, phrase, F business. Uh, that's how he came in with that attitude. Do you think that is, I mean, it's, it's kind of bizarre that we're having a kind of hostile business conversation with, with Tory governments. But do you think that is a product of the Brexit campaign itself and the changes of attitude that has brought about? Or do you think there is a fundamental anti-corporate shift in the zeitgeist? Well, I think it's, it's, I think it's a number of, of different factors at play in, in that relationship. I don't think Boris Johnson has ever been a particularly uh, pro-business politician, which is not to say he's anti-business or has been anti-business. Certainly as mayor, he, he charted a rather different course, although I do and should say I remember him, uh, I was at Davos uh, one year when he came and spoke to the CBI lunch at Davos, and he made definitely one of the two best speeches I've ever heard. I mean, it was just utterly brilliant and very, very funny and very pro-business. Um, pro-business or pro-mafia? I think he was pro, well, he was pro-business in that speech, but I'm not entirely clear whether that speech was a one-off or whether... He, he genuinely believed in the impact that the businesses arranged around that dining room could have. Um, I mean, I remember him doing a very, very funny riff about uh, London being the fourth biggest French city on the planet, um, which does, apparently is true. And um, more French people here than in uh, all but four uh, cities uh, uh, in France. So it's just, a, but he was very, very funny. I think he is, though, not a, he's not a corporatist. He's, he's a different kind of soul. And I guess my main concern about the government is that there really aren't any, oh, sorry, there are one or two, but there aren't that many really significant members of the government with a proper business background. So Rishi Sunak would be the obvious one, and indeed Saj Javid, both, you know, both occupied the Treasury, both are, are extremely successful investment bankers. Um, but there isn't anybody, as far as I can see in the government, with a background in engineering or a background in, in sales or a background in managing manufacturing industry. And I think that does colour their attitude because they don't have the experience of these worlds. So they're not particularly... Um, sympathetic or empathetic to the concerns and and we have to make our case every time there isn't an assumption that food manufacturing industry is good i mean i'm not saying they think it's bad um and i think we've had to you know we've had to earn our stripes as it were now i do actually think we've done that with george eustace um and it just so happens i ran into him at something yesterday and we had a very friendly conversation and i know that george thinks of us as supportive of what he's trying to do, not necessarily supportive of his political position, don't necessarily agree with the word that comes out of his mouth on some occasions, 
but he is nevertheless a real friend of our industry. And I think, you know, that is an example of how you can forge a relationship, but there isn't the assumption that everything that comes out of business is to be welcomed, which other governments of both parties in the last 20 years have had. Kat, um, often on this podcast, when we talk about politics, we talk about Westminster-based politics, and he has been talking about the referendum, by which he means the Brexit referendum, but obviously there's been another, ref- another referendum in the UK, uh, the Scottish independence referendum, and its legacy, which is gearing up to or putting pressure on for another um, referendum. From the Scottish perspective, how do you see things? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think the constitutional question in Scotland has never gone away since that 2014 um, vote. It's been very close. Uh, We remain a divided country. um, And what that has meant is that the SNP government has remained in power. Um, My personal view, and Ian, you might have a view on this, is it suits Nicola Sturgeon to remain in power and continue to ask for a referendum. And if the Westminster government continues to deny that, that will suit them to remain in power for a long, long time. Um, Ian, it'd be interesting to get your reflections on the impact devolutions had on our sector. Well, I think we are now, we've seen that pretty much writ large across the the two years of COVID. So we've had very different treatment um, of the sector by uh, the two main uh, mainland devolved administrations and indeed by the Northern Ireland administration, although I think Northern Ireland is slightly is a slightly different case. I mean, it's worth remembering, as I you know, keep telling people, that each part of the kingdom has a different party governing it. Yeah. So Scotland is governed by the SNP, Wales is governed now by the by Plaid and Labour Party, but predominantly by the Labour Party. Um, and the Tories are in power in uh, Westminster, and of course there are different political parties in Northern Ireland. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing, if you think about it, in terms of the great sweep of history. You know, it's only 24 years since the uh, since Labour came to power with the uh, ple- pledge to establish devolved administrations. Before that, for years, this was an argument that, that you know, refused to go away. And I think, it, I think the achievement of... Um, Nicola Sturgeon and before her, Alex Salmond, although I suppose Alex Salmond is a bit like the character in Harry Potter whose name we may not speak. Um, but uh, I think it's it's an extraordinary achievement to have created, a, and I could use a rather pompous word here, a completely separate polity, which you have in uh, in, in Scotland. And, and it's an even more extraordinary uh, achievement to have swept away the Labour Party. Um, now, I was very close to a number of those big Scottish Labour figures in the um, early noughties, um, people like Martin O'Neill and uh, Brian Wilson uh, and a whole range of other big figures who, who you know, drew their power and influence in the governments of Blair and Brown from Scotland. And to see it now kind of completely swept aside and indeed to some degree uh, to have seen the, the relationship between the SNP and the trade unions supplanting Labour's traditional relationship with the unions is really extraordinary. Um, and I think that hasn't necessarily always been entirely helpful for the food and drink industry. Uh, I think the First Minister has something of a suspicion about business. Um, I don't think I, and I think that is in very sharp contrast to Alex Salmond. I mean, Salmond, who, of course, was chief economist of the Royal Bank of Scotland, was steeped 
in business and saw the value of the relationship with business and could paint a picture of an independent Scotland with a thriving financial and business community. And I don't think that is uh, Nicola Sturgeon's shtick. It's perfectly legitimate that she has a different view. It's perfectly legitimate. But it is interesting that you're dealing in, in you, you and David and our team up in uh, Edinburgh are dealing with a, a different government and a different set of political beliefs, but the same reflexive suspicion of uh, business and its approach to national issues. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. And um, perhaps, I know this is about reflections, but if we could have the Ian Wright crystal ball, the infamous Ian Wright crystal ball, I might take the opportunity to ask you what you think is next for devolution. What do you think in maybe five years' time we'll be looking at politically? Well, it, it's a very interesting question that was posed on a world this weekend, actually, on Sunday, the Sunday just gone. Jim Nocte, uh, broadcasting from Edinburgh, was actually devoted quite a lot of the programme to the question of Sturgeon's succession. Um, now, she's, she's a woman, um, a, a relatively young woman, actually, and I would have thought that there must be a prospect that, that if she wants to, she'll go on. Um, I mean, she's pretty unassailable, I think. Uh, if she doesn't choose to go on, I think it'll be interesting for those of us who are not you know, deeply engaged in Scottish politics because the next leader will be somebody from a different generation. Um, and we had the great good fortune the other night uh, at COP26 at an excellent reception that, the, uh, the, that we staged and that you staged in FDF Scotland to be in the company of Mary Goujon, who is, is a sort of standard bearer for that generation and a completely different kind of politician. I mean, really interestingly different. So, I, I mean, I would feel pretty confident if she was the future, not necessarily as the leader, but if she is indicative of the kind of people that the SNP is now attracting, I think that's good news for the, for, the, for the SNP. I do think, though, that we'll see in Scotland, I do think Labour will finally get some sort of act together. Um, I, I don't know that it's going to be five years, though. I think it's a long haul back for them. Um, but I do, I, I can't see, sadly, for my own uh, political party, uh, the Liberal Democrats, as some people may know, I'm a Liberal Democrat, uh, although I've, I've, eschewed, <laughs> I've eschewed any involvement for the last few years. Um, but it was interesting, again, at the, at the thing that I was attending last night in Downing Street, uh, I had a chance to talk to Tavish Scott, um, who I haven't seen for years, and who was, a, 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 if I can say this, an old mucker. Uh, of mine. And, you know, the idea that Tamish, who was, let's not forget, the first, the deputy first minister in living memory, was, is now running one of our member traders or peer group trade associations. I mean, nobody would have thought that's the way the world would have turned. Um, so, it, you know, the, the success of the SNP is, is something to behold. I wouldn't forget the difference in Wales. Yeah. It's very easy for us to, uh, uh, you know, to, to focus on Scotland. One of the most extraordinary things uh, about COVID is the way that the Welsh First Minister has, despite all the potential evidence of, of, of his different style, has established himself as a really big figure. And he's actually pushed the boundaries of devolution and what the Welsh government can do a lot further than anybody could possibly have expected. 
And I think that's really interesting too. And I don't think that's had enough scrutiny. That's a very interesting point. Yeah, that's the state of play at the moment. I just, I'm just going to take it just one step back. And Mike Tyson famously said, uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. When you came in seven years ago, you obviously would have had a plan. Events and politics, <laughs> well, is that punch in the mouth? And you can never predict that. And so no doubt your ambitions and your plan changed many, 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 many times. But from when you first started seven years ago, has... Have the ambitions that you uh, set out then been achieved, exceeded, changed fundamentally? Well, I don't, it, it's interesting. I didn't come with a particular plan. Um, and I know a number of our colleagues on the FDF staff and maybe one or two members uh, are uh, at least quietly critical of my absence uh, in the strategy area. I mean, a number of surveys we get back from staff says we don't have a strategy uh and i i follow my former boss paul walsh uh who i think has every reason to be regarded as the outstanding british business leader of the of the noughties um who when asked what is the diageo strategy he said sell more boxes um which we tried to point out to him wasn't a strategy it was an objective but uh he didn't see the, didn't see the need to make a distinction um, and I think my my sort of high level, if I can put it that, that way, headline um, ambition for the FDF was set out in in, in, in a two pager I wrote pretty much in my second month here, um, which um, really still characterises what I wanted uh, the FDF to become and what I hoped it could become. And pretty much it is, um, it's where, uh, it's a, we called it, our, I called it our richly imagined future. And when I go back to that, as I do from time to time, I think it captures what I was trying to do. And I'm pleased to say that we've done pretty much all of it. Um, and, you know, I'm not, absolutely not saying what I'm about to say because I, I'm uh, in, you know, I'm saying it, it, it bully for me, as it were, but it is an extraordinary fact that I've done 304 broadcast interviews since the 1st of January 2020, um, and that puts a pretty significant marker down for how seriously the FDF is taken by broadcasters and uh, how they want the FDF point of view, and I think we have, and this is a team effort, this isn't an Ian Wright thing, we have got the FDF to a point where it's you know, pretty much one of the most influential and respected business organisations in the country. We've got the relative importance of food and drink and food and drink manufacturing pretty well established. Now, of course, there's still a long way to go. Um, and uh, and we've, you know, we've, I'm very proud, as you said just now, that we've got a thousand members. I think that's really, really amazing achievement for the team here. Now, though, having established ourselves with that franchise, we've got to leverage it and we've got to see what we can do with it for the good of the industry. And that will be Karen Betts's main task, it seems to me, to, to use the platform that we've created over the last seven years to the to the greater impact and greater interest of the of the wider industry. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Kat. And thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. 
to learn more, learn more about our events, please go to the FDF uh, website, fdf.org.uk. And Ian will be back in two weeks for his final and chat.